Let's turn in God's Word, first of all, to Psalm 14. Psalm 14 instead of Psalm 33. As I put in the bulletin, we're going to read Psalm 14 and then Psalm 36. We read both of these in connection with the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 3, and its treatment of the corruption and depravity of man. So as we read through these psalms, look for the Word of God to us about the extent as well as the source of the sinfulness of man. Psalm 14, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and call not upon the Lord. There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor, because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. And now let's turn to Psalm 36. Psalm 36, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. The wicked, the transgression of the wicked, saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flattereth himself in his own eyes until his iniquity be found to be hateful. The words of his mouth are iniquity and deceit. He hath left off to be wise and to do good. He deviseth mischief upon his bed. He setteth himself in a way that is not good. He abhorreth not evil. Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness reacheth unto the clouds. Thy righteousness is like the great judgment, great mountains. Thy judgments are a great deep, O Lord. Thou preservest man and beast. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. O continue thy loving kindness unto them that know thee, and thy righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come against me, let not the hand of the wicked remove me. 
There are the workers of iniquity fallen. They are cast down and shall not be able to rise. Thus far we read God's holy and inerrant word. May God add His blessing upon the reading of His holy scriptures. It's on the basis of these passages of the Word of God and others as well that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 3. Lord's Day 3, question 6. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse. By no means, but God created man good. And after His own image, in true righteousness and holiness, that he might rightly know God, His Creator, heartily love Him, and live with Him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise Him. Whence then proceeds this depravity of human nature? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. Hence our nature is become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is some difficulty in understanding the meaning of the psalmist David as he, under the inspiration of the Spirit, penned the first verse of Psalm 36. We read there, The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before His eyes. Other translations give a different rendition of that verse. The ESV, English Standard Version, and the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, translate it this way. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. What is not immediately evident from this verse and where there are differences of opinion among translators and commentators on this verse is this question, to whom transgression speaks? The way that the King James translates it is, transgression is speaking unto the writer of the psalm. It's writing, speaking unto David. The transgression of the wicked saith, within my heart. And so there is some message that transgression is giving unto the heart of David, the servant of Jehovah. 
Others, though, understand that transgression is speaking to someone different. The ESV and the RSV is examples of that. We would understand that transgression is speaking unto the wicked individual. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. But although there is some measure of differences of understanding about to whom transgression speaks, where there is unity of thought, and what is clear from this verse is this, transgression speaks. Nobody questions that. Transgression, as it were, has lips and a tongue. Transgression has a mind that is able to formulate thoughts. And transgression speaks. The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart. Transgression speaks even though the man of the world and we as well by nature do everything that we can to suppress the voice of transgression. Transgression is filthy. It's perverse. It is a shameful and sobering subject. And so man does everything in his power to take transgression and mute it. Cover transgression up. Adam and Eve with the fig leaves, made the first attempt to mute the voice of transgression. And man throughout all the rest of history has continued to try to silence that voice. Try though man might, the Word of God stands and the Word of God will not be changed. Transgression speaks itself within my heart. The question is do you speak of your transgression? Do you confess your transgression? It will speak. Man might, through lies and manipulation, be able to hide transgressions from the views of view of others for as long as he is upon this earth. But there comes a day when transgressions will speak in the judgment day. Do you speak? of your transgressions. 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves 
and the truth is not in us. Confessing our depravity. We use that as our theme for the sermon this morning. In the first point, we'll consider the extent of depravity, that it's total depravity. In the second point, consider the source of depravity. Where does it come from? Not of God, but man's depravity. And then third, consider what is our only hope, namely God's deliverance. Confessing our depravity, total depravity, man's depravity, God's deliverance. Question and answer 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism teaches unto the Reformed believer the extent and the seriousness of our sins. Are we then so corrupt We are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness. And the answer of the Reformed Christian is yes. Indeed, we are. What this question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism is setting before us is the truth of man's total depravity. We are totally Depraved means, according to the explanation of the catechism, that there is, that we are wholly incapable of doing any good, and that we are inclined to all different sorts of wickedness. We can consider the truth of total depravity from different, several different aspects. One aspect of the truth of total depravity is this, that depravity is a universal problem. The sinfulness of man is not confined or limited to one area upon this earth. It's not limited to one nation or one race of people or one type of people. But all men, as they come forth from Adam, are corrupt and have become by nature depraved. The psalmist spoke of this truth, that that corruption of man is a universal problem. Psalm 14, verse 2. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. And what did He find? They are all gone aside. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Total depravity, what is it? It's this truth that every part of man is corrupt and sinful. The nature of man is corrupt and The will of man is corrupt. The heart is fallen, and the mind of man is fallen. It is not the case, it is not the teaching of total depravity that there are aspects of man, perhaps his will or his thinking that is corrupt, but then there are other aspects of man which are not corrupt and which are not given over to sinful Lusts. 
but rather the entirety of man is corrupt. All that is within me by nature is given over unto sin. My soul by nature delights in sin, and my flesh by nature delights in that which goes against the just and holy commands of God. Total depravity. What is it? It's a universal problem. Every part of man is corrupt. And then this as well. Every part of man is completely given over unto sin. It's not just that the sum total, if we can speak of all of the different parts of man, it's not just that the sum total of all of the parts of man are given over unto sin, but each aspect of man is of itself entirely given over unto sin. It is not the case that the will of man at times has righteous desires and at times has unrighteous desires. And that at times that will of man sometimes acts according to that principle of goodness that is naturally found within him, but then at other times operates according to that principle of evil that is within him. But instead, that will of man is totally and completely given over unto sinfulness. And so that man delights in, seeks after, pursues, and even finds a measure of satisfaction in the transgression of God's commandments. Total depravity. Now, who does this describe? Who is totally depraved? Now we face this question, especially from the point of view of the child of God. Does the redeemed, regenerated child of God say, I am totally depraved? Period. We would understand, I trust, and all believe that with regard to the man of the world, with regard to the unregenerate, unbelieving, evil doing, evil doer, that he is, she is totally depraved and incapable of doing any good. This is the teaching of God's Word throughout the Scriptures. Genesis 6, verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Psalm 14 that we read. What does the wicked man do? First verse, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so there is consensus and agreement of thought that with regard to the man of the world, he is totally depraved, period. Nothing else. 
to be said of him. But what now of you and of me? What of the one who has been quickened by the Spirit of Jesus Christ? Is it the case that I am still totally depraved and that then that's all that can be said of me? Or must I view myself entirely as one who is the child of God and that I operate out of the principle of the new life of Jesus Christ within me? And that because I have that life of Christ, the new man within me, that therefore I must no longer consider myself to be totally depraved. Perhaps one would say that it would be an insult unto the power of God who has quickened my heart to say that I am still totally depraved. Do you understand the difficulty here? On the one hand, We want to do justice to the power of God as God regenerates His children. We don't want to do an injustice to that work of God by perhaps overemphasizing the depravity of man. But on the other hand, we must do justice to the biblical teaching that man remains corrupt all of his life long. And it's not until death that that old man of sin is eradicated. Am I totally depraved? We say, I am totally depraved, period. To answer this question, beloved, we must follow the wisdom of our Reformed fathers as they addressed this matter and confessed this truth In the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 3, question and answer 8. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? The answer, indeed we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. God. Notice that the answer of the Reformed Confession is in the affirmative. Am I wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? We do not deny that we are given over to all wickedness, and thus by nature we are totally depraved. And yet, the writers of the Catechism insisted that there must be a qualification of that affirmative answer. Am I by nature depraved? Yes, except. But. There's a but clause in there. Yes, I am by nature totally depraved, except I be regenerated by the Spirit of God. And so then there is within me then two natures. There is that sinful and that corrupt nature. And there is that new nature, the life of Jesus Christ within me. 
And when I am considered from that old man of sin within me, is that old man of sin corrupt? Yes, he is. And he will remain corrupt for as long as God is pleased to have me upon the face of this earth. But that's not all that I am except I am regenerated by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And I believe I am regenerated by His Spirit. So yes, that old man is depraved, but I have as well within me the life through the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And yet by nature I am depraved. And so we can relate to then and make as our own confession what the psalmist says is true of the wicked. In Psalm 36, what is true of us by nature, the psalmist helps us understand in verses 2 through 4, what is true of the depraved individual. The depraved individual is proud. And you are proud. And I am proud by nature. Verse 2, For he flattereth himself in his own eyes. The carnal man lives and the carnal man dies for himself. He does not seek to flatter we would say to give glory unto God, but he seeks to flatter himself because he thinks so very highly of himself. He believes that he is important. He believes that others would do well to lean upon him. And so he flatters himself with his own tongue. Because he is proud... He is not beyond misrepresenting the truth to make himself look better. That's verse 3, the first part. The words of his mouth are iniquity and deceit. This is you, and this is me by nature. That the words which come off of our lips instead of us being concerned, first of all, about truth, we're concerned about me. And because of the concern of self, we are okay with using our lips, our mouth, for iniquity and deceit. The word iniquity means literally vanity, emptiness, to be fruitless. And how much of conversation among even the children of God is characterized that way? Emptiness and vanity of speech. Gossip that satisfies the carnal desires of man, but in no way seeks to promote the glory which is due unto the name of Jehovah. Depravity 
How does depravity show itself? It shows itself this way in that man is willing to deviate from the way of truth. Verse 3, the second half, He hath left off to be wise and to do good. And what's remarkable about this sinfulness of man as he deviates from truth is this, he knows better. He has truth within him. The text does not say that he doesn't understand or doesn't comprehend wisdom, but the text says that he hath left off to be wise. Our Reformed Fathers speak of this Truth that God has given unto man, even unto fallen man, some measure of understanding of what is right and of what is wrong. The Canons of Dort speak of that in Heads 3-4, Article 4. That there remain in man some glimmerings of natural light. These glimmerings of natural light are insufficient as far as their ability to bring one unto a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But instead, the canons explain that by these glimmerings of natural light, man is able to retain some knowledge of God and of what is right and of what is wrong. And so man, as he has this knowledge of what is pure and of what is impure within him, he, according to the psalmist, leaves off that which is wise. He puts it away. He abandons it. Recklessly, man walks in ways of open rebelliousness unto God. It's depravity. He leaves off being wise. Then what does the depraved person do? He no longer hates evil. The end of verse 4, he abhorreth not evil. Instead of recognizing something as wicked and thus distancing himself as far as he possibly can from that which is wicked, he gets as close as he can to that carnal thing. Think of Lot, who saw what Sodom and Gomorrah had to offer at first in the distance, but then he pitched his tent incrementally closer and closer until at last he was caught up in the wickedness of those cities. He abhors not that which is evil. Depravity. What is true of you and me by nature? It's this, beloved, that we would, according to our flesh, use every opportunity that we can in the advancement of evil. Verse 4a, He, the sinful man, 
deviseth mischief upon his bed. He setteth himself in a way that is not good. The evil man is not content simply to spend his waking hours thinking about that evil thing in his life that he desires and covets. But even as he goes to bed, he cannot sleep at nighttime for his mind is consumed with thoughts of evil. Wickedness overtakes that individual so that it is as if he were possessed by the devil himself. Because man deviseth mischief upon his bed and continues to set himself forth in the way that is evil, there is development of wickedness upon the face of this earth. So that the sins that the parents walked in, the children run in them. More and more man uses the inventions and the ingenuity of man upon this earth to pervert and to corrupt that which God has created as good. That's why the Word of God teaches us that it will be more tolerable in the judgment day for Sodom and for Gomorrah than for the Jews in Jerusalem in the day of Jesus Christ. Why? Because there is development of sin from the time of Sodom and Gomorrah up until the time that Jesus Christ walked upon this earth. And if there was development between Sodom and the days of Jesus... How much more development has there not been between the days of Jesus and today? Will it be more tolerable in the judgment day for the Jews of Jerusalem than for the citizens of Linden? There is development of wickedness upon the face of this earth. Transgression speaks. God knows it. But understanding, beloved, that we are by nature depraved and given over to every carnal lust upon this earth, The question then is, whose fault? Who is to blame for this? The answer that is set forth in the catechism is that it is not God's fault, but it's man's fault. Question six. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? By no means, but God created man good and after His own image in true righteousness and holiness. The goodness of God in creating man is this, that God created man in such a way that man resembled God. 
There is a likeness between the Creator God, who by His Word called the things that were not as though they are, and on the other hand, the creature who is shaped by the mouth of God. That's the goodness of God in creating man. God created man in such a way that man, in a creaturely way, resembled God and even looked like God. In what sense did man resemble God? What was the aspects of his character in which he, he, he had that image of God? The Catechism explains it unto us. He was created in his image, first of all, in true righteousness, second, holiness, third, that he might rightly know God his creator. That's how God created man, in his goodness in the beginning, in God's image, with righteousness, with holiness, and with the knowledge of God. Righteousness. It's a kingly and a royal virtue. The king rules in righteousness. Holiness. It's a priestly virtue. The priest was to be cleansed and adorned with the holy garments given them by God's instruction before the priest would enter into that most holy place. Knowledge is a prophetic virtue. The prophet had knowledge of the great and the almighty God, and the prophet would bring unto the saints that revelation of God unto His people. Who is to blame for our sinfulness? Not God. But God created man good. Capable of obeying His good commandments. God gave unto man a delightful place in the garden. God gave unto him beauty in the garden. God gave to him life. God gave unto him food. And God gave unto man fellowship with God. It was possible for man rightly to know God his Creator, heartily to love Him and to live with Him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise Him. Who is to blame? Not God, but man. Question 7. Whence then proceeds this depravity of human nature from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise? There were Adam and Eve planted in the garden, enjoying all of the good that God had in store for them. They could eat the fruit of the trees. They could enjoy sweet and blissful fellowship one with another as husband and as wife. They were naked, the Word of God tells us, and not ashamed. 
of that nakedness. They delighted not just in each other as husband and as wife, but they delighted in their relationship with the One who created them. They could know God according to that knowledge of God which God had given them as God created them in His own image. They were given the mental capacity to know God And they were given the emotional capacity to be able to love God and to delight in that relationship with God. They understood that it was their duty to love God above all else. But their man in the garden reached, partook, and ate. He did so according to his own willful disobedience. He knew better, and yet he partook. Certainly it is the case that God was in control of that fall into sin. Certainly God was sovereign over that evil. Certainly it is the case that the devil had a role in the fall into sin. That the devil as the tempter came and took that which was evil and presented it to our first parents as if it were good. But recognizing God's sovereignty over the fall into sin and understanding that the devil had a role in that original sin, does not take away from the fact that man, Adam, as he stood in that garden, was and is responsible for that fall into sin. Nobody took that hand of Adam and forced Adam against his will to reach out and take that fruit. But Adam, out of the loss of his own heart, chose of his own determination that he would rather walk in a way of disobedience and rebellion unto God. Who is to blame for our depravity so that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Adam. But also this, you and I, we are responsible for our own fall into sin. Adam was given a unique position in the Garden of Eden. He was the federal and the representative head of the whole human race. So that it's not as if we were not in the garden. It's not as if we may distance ourselves from that fall and look down on Adam with great sorrow and lamentation. If only Adam had not committed that sin. If I had been in that place, I would have done differently. No, we were there. We were represented through Adam. Romans 5, verse 
12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And that last phrase of Romans 5 verse 12 could otherwise be translated this way, in whom all have sinned. Speaking of Adam, as that original sin was committed, in whom, in Adam, all have sinned. We all, with Adam, reached out. And we willingly, without anybody forcing our hands, reached out. And we took of that forbidden fruit. Who is to blame you and me? And that shows us how grievous our sins are. Does it not? Our depravity is not such that we had no choice in this matter. No, God created us good, capable of living as His friend servant upon this earth, capable of enjoying all the good that He had in store for us, and yet we reached out and took it. Is there any way out of this depravity? The Catechism sets forth hope before us, and it does so in the second part of the answer to question 8. Are we so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. On this earth, God is pleased to give unto us the beginning of our deliverance from sin and the lusts of the flesh. And the beginning of the deliverance that God gives unto us is worked by the regeneration that comes from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Regeneration is God giving unto us that new man. And so that there are then within us, there is within us first that old man of sin, but as well there is that new man of Jesus Christ. And we mustn't imagine that having that new man within us eliminates or kills that old man within us. It's not as if having that new man within us means that as we get older and as we seek and pray for growth in sanctification, that that old man is going to become less and less corrupt the older that we become. No. Ask any elderly saint who has spent a lifetime fighting against the temptations of the flesh. And their confession will be, it doesn't get any easier. In fact, in some ways, it seems as if that old man grows Stronger 
Regeneration does not kill the old men of sin. The regeneration gives unto us a new man. The life of Christ Himself. How amazing that God would give unto us that new life in Christ. How staggering is the thought that God will look down upon us and observe what we have done. The Lord looked from the heavens, the psalmist said. Psalm 14, verse 2, He looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. God's observation is this. They are all gone aside. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. That's what God observed and observes. There is none that by nature loves Him. There is none that by nature loves the neighbor. And yet God in His grace sent His Son Jesus Christ into this world to bear up under the curse of the law. He became sin so that we could be quickened by His poured out Spirit. Who can fathom the love and the mercy of God unto us? Psalm 36, verse 5, Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and Thy faithfulness reacheth unto the clouds. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And we by nature would say in our hearts, there is no God. We plead of Thee, Wilt Thou strengthen us according to the new man of Christ within us, that we might be resolved within to fight against that old man of sin? Wilt Thou graciously pardon us where we have rebelled against Thee? Wilt Thou preserve us for Jesus' sake? Amen.